Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. I'm very excited to have my next guest on. Um, it's kind of a last minute thing because originally I had a couple, two or three different interviews uh, set up uh, that I was going to air and logistically it kind of fell apart a little bit on me and um, I thought, oh boy, what am I going to do here? I could throw up another interview, but it wouldn't be appropriate for what I'm trying to do. And I, I, I asked a few people and then I thought, you know, this gentleman who I met, we, we were Facebook friends, but we actually met at the hotel lobby at where, where we were staying in Park City, Utah for the Mormon History Association. I think you were, I think Rick Bennett was the first person in the state of Utah that I gave my business card. And I think you were the second person that got my business card. And then, um, and we had a wonderful conversation getting to know each other. Um, it's really my honor to have um, Bruce Van Orden. Uh, thank you so much for coming on to my program. Good morning, Stephen. It's an honor being with you. I'm glad we've uh, become good friends. Yes, I, I, I am too. Uh, I just wanted to give a little introduction about you for my audience. Uh, Bruce Van Orden is an emeritus professor of church history and doctrine at Brigham Young University. Before his time at BYU, he taught in seminaries and institutes. He served in the South German mission from 1965 to 67. During retirement, Bruce and his wife, Karen, had a seven-year prison ministry. Bruce has served twice as a bishop and four times as a high counselor. He has served on the church curriculum committees and has uh, published widely on scriptural and church history themes. Bruce and Karen have five children. So that's, again, thank you for coming on the program. Now, our intention was, uh, originally, was uh, we were going to talk about your uh, books uh, from about W.W. W. Phelps. And... Um, it's on its way. I talked to uh, Devin Jensen at BYU, the Religious Studies Center Publication Department, and they have it on the way, but it hasn't arrived yet. But uh, we're going to have a separate episode where we're going to talk about the book, We'll Sing and We'll Shout, The Life and Times of W.W. Phelps. Before we get started, why don't you just talk a little bit about W.W. Phelps, what kind of person he was, and what drawn you to write about him? Thank you. W.W. Uh, Phelps um, is actually William Wines Phelps. He was named uh, after uh, William Wines, a famous uh, Revolutionary War general from New Jersey who had uh, uh, adopted as a goddaughter uh, William's mother. Uh, and so she named her first son after her godfather, William Wines, and, and that's his name, William Wines Phelps. Uh, he was uh, apprenticed as a printer uh, and then very much self-taught and had become a, an intellectual and a very bright and enthusiastic newspaper editor. He was a partisan, uh, very much involved in politics and uh, had established a successful newspaper uh, in Canandaigua, New York, which is uh, near the seat of Mormonism in Palmyra where Joseph Smith lived. Uh, he picked up a copy of the Book of Mormonism that came off the press because he's aware of it's being published by a neighboring uh, newspaper. Uh, and through the Book of Mormon, he was converted. He was 14 years older than Joseph Smith uh, and became more or less uh, an advisor. Uh, I assert in the book that uh, in the first 15 years of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, that is 1830 to 1845, the W.W. Phelps was among the 10 most influential people in Mormonism. Uh, and I'm able to show the uh, great association he had with Joseph Smith. He's well known in Mormon circles as being a hymnist, a hymn writer. Some of the most famous hymns in uh, the church uh, were uh, composed by him. Uh, the Spirit of God Like a Fire is Burning is sung regularly by Mormon congregations and at every temple dedication that the church has. It was sung at the very first temple dedication that in Kirtland, Ohio in 1836. Uh, there are a number of other songs that he has sung, he has composed that people sing. Uh, but I want to go on to show folks that he was uh, an ecclesiastical leader and very much uh, a promoter of Mormonism in the printing business. He was, a, he was the first one to bring printing and publishing to the church. He published the first newspaper and he helped publish the first books. Uh, he was also ascribed to Joseph Smith and during the Nauvoo period, the last years of Joseph Smith's life, 
Phelps ended up being uh, a ghostwriter of sorts of theological and political and historical material for Joseph Smith. So he was he was very important in Mormonism. He was also a quirky character, uh, an eccentric, uh, uh, bombastic and enthusiastic. And uh, so it's interesting to become acquainted with him and his ways. Yeah, it was so interesting. Uh, I sat in one of your presentations that you gave earlier this week, and you had mentioned that um, he did do a lot of ghostwriting. Uh, very interesting. Also, like he was the editor of the Times and Seasons, and uh, even though Joseph Smith's name was uh, listed as editor, really he was doing the editing. But what I thought what was so fascinating, and of course we'll be getting more into this when we do the uh, the book conversation. But one thing that really stuck out with me was a lot of your um, critics of Joseph Smith have used his inability, if you will, to translate, and they would use the letter of to the Green Mountain Boys as an example of, well, here he gets it all wrong with the language, but you actually found that it wasn't Joseph who wrote that letter, but it was it was Phelps that did it. Exactly, and Phelps uh, thought that he understood languages. He claimed he knew 14 languages. <laughs> and, and so he would uh, cite languages uh, in the articles he wrote in behalf of Joseph Smith to make it look like uh, Smith was a linguist. So that was interesting because I've seen a lot of criticisms and they would often use that. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. So that's one less thing that one can criticize Joseph over. Um, so, yeah, when we get uh, in the next month or so, we're going to get back to this book because I got to read it and then we can really give it the, the justice that it deserves. But I just wanted to let's talk a little bit about yourself. Tell me about your background, uh, who, where, where you were born, uh, what, what your faith was as a child and just Give, give me some background and and and, uh, and we'll go from there. Uh, well, uh, I'm now in uh, my senior citizenry. Yeah. Uh, 75 years old, retired. Uh, I'm still active as a historian and a writer. Uh, I do research and and writing every day. Uh, I think my mind's still sharp, but uh, I no longer uh, am a professor. Uh, I was a professor at Brigham Young University in religious education, church, uh, church history and doctrine. Uh, prior to that, uh, I was in the church, church's uh, educational system. Uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has a system for high school and college age youth where for a, a, an hour a day, they can go take uh, religion classes. It's called seminary in high school and institute in college. And I was a seminary instructor to begin with, dating back in 1970. Uh, and then I became an institute teacher. I was also a curriculum writer for seminaries and institutes. Uh, so my entire career was one where I was hired by the church, either by the church educational system or Brigham Young University, which is sponsored by the church. I was born in Salt Lake City in 1946. Uh, my father served in World War II uh, in North Africa and Italy. Uh, he was among the earliest soldiers to go to battle, and, and because of that, he was able to rotate back to the United States before the war was over, and uh, they took him to his uh, native state, which is Utah, and he worked as a military policeman at the uh, railroad depot where some much of war material and soldiers passed through. Uh, in the process of that, he met my mother, who was working in a war industry in Salt Lake. Uh, they got married in March of 1945 while he was still in uniform in, in the Salt Lake Temple. And uh, therefore, I was born the next year, 1946, as their oldest child in Salt Lake City. Uh, after the, he was discharged from the military, uh, he took a job right at the railroad depot, the Union Pacific, as a law enforcement officer. They liked what he had done in the military. Uh, and we spent my first six years uh, there in Salt Lake, but then we were transferred out to Nebraska uh, in 1952. And so I grew up in uh, a really small uh, Latter-day Saint branch in a small town. Uh, and my parents gave me a piano lessons starting at age nine with the idea that uh, I could learn to accompany uh, the singing in, uh, in the youth organization and ultimately in services, uh, worship services in the branch. And that's what I did. Uh, I learned how to play the piano. And by age 12, I was accompanying in church. Uh, I noticed as I uh, learned all of the hymns that uh, the most 
exciting ones and most enthusiastic ones were by this William W. Phelps. So I was interested in him in the early going. Um, ultimately, uh, my family was transferred back to Salt Lake City uh, when I was in high school. I went on to Brigham Young University, uh, went on my mission to Germany, and I want to emphasize that uh, that was a, a major turning point in my life. Uh, I got involved in humanities and liberal education as a result of my experiences in Germany. I learned the language, I learned it well. I decided that uh, it was a gift that God had given me and I would hold on to it. And uh, I've, uh, I've striven to uh, maintain that language and have done so. Uh, I. I actually majored in German uh, education with the idea that if I didn't teach in the church educational system, I could teach German, and I have taught it from time to time. Um, but in any event, uh, over the years, I've gone back to that country. I consider Germany my second homeland, German my second language. Um, I, I love the culture, love the, uh, the people, I love the fact that uh, Germany plays such a prominent role in world affairs today. I often go over to, to visit friends and I frequently speak at uh, groups uh, in their language. I've even gone in, on a tour and talked to young groups, young people groups about W.W. Phelps in their language. So uh, I, I've maintained my German connection. Uh, I met my wife at BYU and uh, during the summer previous to our last year in college, we went and lived at her parents' home in El Monte, California. Uh, she taught early morning seminary for young people in places that are away from the headquarters of the LDS church. They have seminary before school even starts. And she taught that in an early morning setting. She was very much a history and gospel scholar. She had all kinds of books, uh, including the official history of the church. Not too many people owned it. It was not widely distributed back in the 60s. Uh, but I started thumbing through it, the official history, and I noticed that uh, William W. Phelps was everywhere to be seen in an association with Joseph Smith. Uh, I found out about how he had uh, apostatized and left the church, but Joseph Smith had accepted him back in in a very interesting, forgiving manner. And I felt that was so fascinating. Uh, I had one more year to go in college, but I figured, well, maybe one day I could write a biography of this man. And sure enough, that's what I was able to accomplish. Um, anyway, I got into a seminary and institute starting in 1970. Um, it was then that I became much more familiar with the fullness of the history and how uh, many challenges it presented and I think you were going to ask me a little bit about some of those things. So why don't you go ahead with those questions? Yeah, so, you know, this is, you know, especially this is a period of time when most people sitting in the pews, it's only recently have like through saints and through the gospel topics essays, uh, our regular members of the church exposed to a lot of the history that back then they weren't exposed to. Nobody would have known about the seer stone and some of the other issues that happened in the church so they were taught a different narrative so here you are you're you're encountering what is taught in in, in church and then but what is actually what the actual history is it was completely different so how did that one affect your faith and how were you able to navigate in that world well it was gradual uh as i learned things uh, there was there's a printing house in salt lake city uh Lighthouse Ministries that uh, uh, was run by Gerald and Sandra Tanner. And uh, a couple of my uh, more experienced colleagues when I entered the seminary teaching business uh, knew quite a bit about what the Tanners were publishing and they showed me and it was shocking in many ways because it was an expose of Mormons based on history in large manner. And uh, Gerald and Sandra Tanner were considered the opposition, the ones who would do everything to undercut uh, what we were doing. So I. I read as much as I could of them, but became frustrated with that group of people because it looked like they were trying to destroy what meant everything to me. Uh, but I realized that uh, they had several historical issues that I needed to examine. And so I, I did and, and realized that uh, uh, there were inconsistencies in how we were teaching. We were teaching like everything was just 
perfect and clean and sanitary. And I realized that it wasn't. So it became a challenge. But the more I got into it, the real I realized, well, that's okay. Uh, I can I can deal with every one of these issues in my own mind. I started uh, going then to the Mormon History Association. I became acquainted with what uh, Leonard Arrington, the new church historian, was putting out, and uh, I felt fairly comfortable. But uh, it's when I uh, entered my uh, graduate work in history that I realized that uh, I couldn't be a complete historian in the sense of telling the transparent truth about everything as I saw it, because uh, uh, just as I was emerging out into the writing business, uh, we were receiving instructions from leadership, uh, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, three members of which uh, said that we should not write any type of controversial history, if particularly if we were being paid by the tithing funds of the church. And so I, I ran into that, that tension and it, it was a difficult tension. Uh, I decided that I, when I would teach church history to my students at Brigham Young University, I would be open and honest and fair and transparent, uh, but I had to be careful what I would actually write in published form. That's an interesting uh, challenge. And that went on for a number of years. Fortunately, that has entirely changed. Those three apostles, for example, that were opposed to controversial history writing, they're all dead. And, uh, and, uh, and the uh, current leadership uh, is not opposed to what the church has come out with in saints, the volumes there, and most especially the uh, Joseph Smith papers. So you, uh, how did you actually go to the Tanner's place and get the materials yourself or would you send people to do it or what was your interaction with the well, tanners? I, I, I first uh, borrowed from my colleagues but then I was curious enough and so I went uh, there across the street from uh, the ballpark where they have their home and their publishing house and I, I and I did have some interaction from time to time with uh, people who were selling things there. Okay um, Gerald was a pretty remarkable man the man was a genius that's what I've understood. I, I never did meet him directly, uh, but that's what I understood him to be. And now I've become acquainted with Sandra uh, through Mormon History Association. Find out her, find out that she's a very delightful person and one that we can associate with in a very pleasant manner. That's that's a good thing. Yeah, uh, the weekend I was there of the MHA, uh, Sandra said, "Come on down to my bookstore Sunday afternoon. I'll open it up to you." So me and Rick Bennett sat in her in her office she gave us a tour of it and for three and a half hours she just was regaling us with story after story and it was pretty remarkable she's a remarkable woman and yes. it's great that uh, in some ways a lot of what she and her husband were doing has been vindicated um essentially you really can't say that the tanners are the boogeyman anymore because they were just basically publishing what the church is now acknowledging is generally to be factually correct right yes yep so um did you ever have a moment where you, where, where, the, where the tension was there and you were afraid you were going to cross the line or you got upset about something or you were, you were told to pull back or anything? Or did you pretty much just walk that tightrope the whole time you were doing that? Uh, I pretty much walked the tightrope. But uh, back when I was still in graduate school, uh, I presented at Sunstone Annual uh, conference in the summer, uh, I was uh, beginning to write my dissertation, which was a biography of George Reynolds, who was a five uh, or a secretary to five different presidents of the church. He was also famous because of the Reynolds versus the United States Supreme Court decision of 1979, when it, the Supreme Court came out against polygamy and saying that it was unlawful. Uh, and so he's, it's an interesting biography. And I was working on my dissertation I made a presentation at Sunstone about his British Israelism, which was a, a doctrine at the time that uh, the House of Israel came to the British people. Uh, the Ten Lost Tribes had gone to Britain. And I was uh, giving that historical background uh, at Sunstone, and Sunstone was willing to publish what I was doing. But right at that time, they said, don't publish them in, in these alternative voices like Sunstone. So I, I pulled out from 
that because I was required to do so in order to maintain my employment. Um, the tension was uh, was there. Uh, I had come to grips, and I still am. Uh, I'm able to do this. I, I'm able to come to grips with the uh, any of the challenges uh, in Mormon history because I realize that they're human beings and they make mistakes, and, and that uh, none of the so-called prophets or presidents of the church or members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, none of them were perfect individuals, and they themselves were striving to do what they felt was God's will, but sometimes made mistakes and and every once in a while enormous mistakes uh and i realized that they were experimenting as they went along brigham young was a great experimenter and, and all of them were in many ways and uh and so I, i'm able to deal with that based on the human condition that i learned to see as a as a historian so uh, in my personal faith there was relatively little challenge but trying to be honest at the same time was uh, hard uh, I did serve in the church all the way through. Uh, you mentioned that I've been a, a, an LDS bishop. I was in my home ward in Utah. And then after that, I got a calling as a bishop uh, of a singles student ward at BYU. Uh, I've been on several high councils. It, it mentioned in the biography that I've served on four. Well, I'm currently in my fifth one, even as I speak. I'm serving on the uh, stake high council of the uh, Springville, Utah, Hobble Creek West stake. Um, one of the things that me, uh, I, I deal with the tension in, in two basic ways. One is that I, I love music. I, I mentioned that earlier. And, uh, and hymns mean a great deal to me. The, the ones that praise the Lord Jesus Christ are, are significant to me. I often actually weep as I sit at the piano and, and play these songs and sing them, contemplate them. Uh, I go to church and sing enthusiastically and uh, and with great belief in my heart, uh, and including the restoration hymns, the hymns that deal with Christ, the, deal, the hymns that deal with the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, uh, the, the ones that deal with the theology that we embrace. And, uh, and I love the theology more or less, uh, this idea of a pre-mortal life and a post-mortal existence that, uh, where we continue to improve and progress and become godlike, hopefully along the way. Uh, so all of those things mean a great deal to me and they are embodied in, the, in our singing. Um, and then the, the second aspect of uh, why I remain absolutely loyal and faithful to the faith is because uh, our desire is to help people and to lift people and to make them feel happy and, 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 and cope with the challenges that they have in life. Uh, my motto as Bishop of the Linden Sixth Ward was, uh, I want to make sure that all the members within our congregation got the full benefit of what the church could provide. The, the church offers many opportunities and, and dealing with poverty, if, if there's that kind of thing, we can help deal with that. Uh, we can give people a chance to serve and to be involved in good activities. And so I, I find great solace in the fact that we're doing good things. And currently in my uh, stake high council calling, uh, I recognize that everything that we're trying to do uh, in stake leadership to help people within the, uh, the boundaries of our stake is to lift them, to make them happier and, and more comfortable and, and give them the opportunity to improve their lives. Uh, it's, uh, I, I don't see any of these big controversial items coming up within our state. I imagine that they do in other places. Uh, I am concerned on, uh, on the other level about uh, how LGBTQ uh, people are often mistreated and, and not given full opportunities. I, I feel bad about that way. I don't see any issue within our state, but I guess in other places that's true. Uh, I get frustrated. Uh, uh, when uh, uh, leadership will want to dictate exactly how we might feel on a particular issue. But uh, I also find solace in the fact that a good many of us make up our own minds anyway and, and, and have a lot of friends in the process that where we can think the way we want to uh, as we go along anyway. Yeah, I just, uh, one of the big issues of the last few years, of course, was the November policy, uh, where- 2015. Yes. Yeah, in 2015, and that was a real, that was just 
the way that was handled, it was, I, I just am still boggled by it. I know they've kind of rescinded all of it now, but it just seemed like there was, they were, I think they were trying to tie it into how they treat polygamist children and they wanted to apply the same standard to uh, children of LGBTQ parents, but it, it was just a, tra kind of a, just a tragedy what happened there. It, it, it was not handled well. Uh, it, it was interesting. I was uh, serving as a Sunday school president uh, in my uh, ward at the time, and I was sitting outside in the uh, hallway waiting to go into the ward uh, council meeting, and uh, an adjacent ward, uh, I was in the fifth ward, and adjacent ward, the fourth ward, the, the, uh, I knew the bishop well. In fact, he's a historian, a fellow historian with me, and uh, he, he walked into the building and I went up and gave him a big hug right after this happened because we both knew how we felt about the issue and, and we just commiserated with each other and, and realized that hopefully there'll be an answer to this and, and as time is moving on, hopefully there are increasing answers. Like you say, the, the policy was rescinded. You know, one thing we talked about the other day um, was we both uh, have experiences with people um, who went on missions and experienced uh, abuse, uh, maybe from a mission president or a missionary companion. Um, we have, we know of people that have come back from their missions and have suffered from PTSD. I just want to maybe talk a little bit about something that's not really talked about, but I've definitely have heard from quite a few different places that this is this is a fairly common thing. Well. Uh common in the sense that uh, we have so many missionaries that go out every year into the tens of thousands. And so if you even have uh, two or three percent of those missionaries having uh, an unfortunate experience, that adds up mathematically after a while. Uh, when I was a missionary, there were uh, 12,000 missionaries worldwide. And then it got up to as high as 85,000. It's not that many now. The pandemic has had an effect upon the new number of people called. I think we're about 60,000 or something at the moment. Uh, but that's a lot of them. Uh, I was privileged uh, to have a, an outstanding mission president who taught us that uh, the culture and, and uh, the benefit of learning about people and going to uh, operas and, pre and special presentations that the German people could provide us was a good thing. Uh, and it was uplifting to uh, learn about everything in the world, not just uh, focus on, uh, on uh, proselytizing. I, I know that in some missions, uh, the emphasis has been upon numbers, getting a, a higher number of baptisms, and uh, you can only listen to music from the Tabernacle Choir and you can only read Mormon uh, uh, theological works that are approved and, uh, and you can't read newspapers and you can't talk politics and you can't go, uh, you can't notice anything on television. Well, I didn't have that kind of a prohibition in my experience. I felt that during my time, I knew what was going on in the world uh, at the same time that I was serving. And uh, I, I felt had a really good, well-rounded experience. And, and to me, that was profitable. And then I taught my children that this was a good thing. And my two oldest children ended up going to Germany too and having similar experiences. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I have uh, another child who uh, went on a mission and his first mission president was really super and understand, understood his needs and, and his differences of opinion politically from some of the other people in the area. And, uh, and he said, yeah, I'm that way too. In fact, they would even uh, uh, show each other kind of a D when they would see each other because they were both Democrats. <laughs> and, uh, and everything went perfectly well for that first year. But then his uh, second mission president came in and uh, and was a businessman and, and had the idea of numbers and, and he took away the service opportunities that they were having and, uh, and he didn't understand my son's personality and he ended up, uh, it's a really long story, but it was a horrible spiritual abuse experience and, and he came home uh, uh, totally shaken with PTSD all right and, and has really never recovered from it because of uh, uh, the, the sad experiences of the mission president. Uh, my guess is of the 430 or so mission presidents at the present time, 
probably 390 of them uh, are very good, kind, generous, uplifting type of people. In fact, I, I hear good stories too from missionaries who come back. One of the benefits of my being on the Stake Eye Council is uh, we received the missionary reports of all the missionaries coming back uh, to our stake uh, boundaries. And uh, they, they often tell of really uplifting experiences from their mission presence. But okay, say uh, 40 out of the 430 end up being kind of autocratic and, and, uh, and narrow-minded and, uh, and having goals that don't seem to fit with pure Christianity. And, uh, and if they don't care about the human condition that they're dealing with with some of the young men and young women who come into their uh, ranks and, and who are different in personalities and, and grew up differently than they did, uh, and then mistreat them, then we have the unfortunate aftermath for some of these missionaries. Yeah, you know, I just so often think about how they're still just kids. You know, many That's, of them- are... In fact, there are more kids now than they used to be. I went when I was 19, and now they go when they're 18. Yeah, and, and I just think of these guys, how they do this, and I thought, they're just kids. You got to give them, give them some slack, you know, and I, you know, it's just one of those things. I, I've heard some stories, and, and you've, you've relayed that story to me about your son, and, and uh, I've, a few people have reached out to me, and I've kind of just talked with them about that whole issue that they're having, and, um, you know, this, this is not something that I can, as an evangelical, go and say, well, look at you guys. I mean, obviously, we have issues with abuse and spiritual uh, abuse, especially, and really, spiritual trauma is about the worst type of kind of trauma that one can experience, and so we need to be cognizant of when we're dealing with people and their faith and, and something, something as precious as their faith, that we need to be gentle and loving in how we approach that, but when people use that as a means of controlling people or abusing, it, 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 it almost, almost is almost impossible to fru truly fully recover from something like that. I think you're right. By the way, we have a family motto that we teach our grandchildren. It's very simple, be gentle and kind. And when we go and visit with our grandchildren, uh, we go over that motto frequently because that's how we want to treat people. The whole idea about this human existence is uplifting others, being gentle to people, being kind to people. Uh, that's what I believe, and, and I believe that's what pure Christianity requires of us. Yeah, I think that's what Jesus is all about. There's no doubt about that. And we all can strive to be more like Jesus. And, and by just following in his steps and being kind and gentle, I think is, uh, is the way to go. I look at somebody like Mr. Rogers, you know, and when you read his story, uh, he was truly acting out the ways of Christ. You know, he had a ministry, if you will, through Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. And when I always tell people, if you want to see Christianity in one of its purest form, just look at how he dealt with race issues in the 60s. He, how he dealt with uh, people who worked for him who were gay and treated and told them, I love you. You know, and I think, boy, we need more of that. We need more Mr. Rogers in our, in, in our faith community. I, I, I absolutely believe the same. And of course, the movie about him, we went and enjoyed it as well. Uh, one thing I didn't mention about my career is that uh, BYU has a Jerusalem Center for Near Eastern Studies, and it takes in... Uh, 160 students at any given time. And I, I taught there for a year, three different semesters. Uh, and uh, I would sing, uh, we, we would arrange with my classes as we went on field trips or in the classroom setting, either way, we would sing a lot of things. Uh, but the, I said, our theme song that we're gonna be singing your entire time with me is I'm striving to be like Jesus. Uh, there's a beautiful primary type of song that we have in our church. I'm trying to be like Jesus. And we would sing that again and again with the whole idea that that's the, the reason we're here. And of course we were in New Testament country and we went on New Testament field trips and, and went to places where Jesus uh, lived, taught and performed his miracles. And so we would sing that all the time. That, that's my belief system, trying to be like him. Amen. Well, uh, I want to talk about uh, the current state of the church. You know, there's uh, under President Nelson, we've seen unprecedented uh, uh, building of temples and announcing of new uh, temples in different parts of the world, places where there aren't even a whole lot of members, but they're building these temples. And I just wanted to kind of get your, um, your thoughts on that. 
I have been really surprised in the three plus years that President Nelson has been in that he's uh, talked about all these new temples. In fact, uh, every general conference he announces another seven to ten. Uh, I was truly surprised this past time when he uh, mentioned a couple of them in Europe. One of my, my books, by the way, is a history of the church in Europe, so I know the European setting quite well, have been to all the major towns, uh, and he announced uh, uh, a temple in Brussels and, and a temple in Vienna. BYU has a Vienna study abroad, which I directed uh, back in the 1990s, uh, and we traveled throughout all of Europe, but we lived in Vienna, and uh, there were only three uh, wards in Vienna itself. There was a Vienna stake, but it took in communities around. Uh, and in the entire nation of Austria, there are only 4,500 members. I suppose the Vienna temple would uh, take in Hungary and, and a few other places, but it's not like there are great amounts of members and they all could go uh, to a temple in, uh, in Germany. Uh, because they are part of the European Union now. Uh, and, but even so, they're, they're building these temples in places that really are not so necessary. But I, I believe that President Nelson has in mind that he wants people to focus their lives on that. The idea of families being forever, uh, sealing together husbands and wives and children and parents and the eternal link that we have as we talk about family history. By the way, I am a family historian. I spend a lot of my daily life in preparing for that. I, I'm the director of the local family history center in our city. Uh, and I am fond of speaking about my ancestors and writing about them and urging people to do the same thing. Uh, and we do believe in uh, providing ordinances of salvation for our kindred dead. Uh, and that goes on in the temples. And so I guess President Nelson is really anxious to have people focus on those types of things, the whole family organization. Uh, it's curious because uh, families are not the same. I mean, all sorts of people in, in the church are in single parent families, uh, either from a divorce or, or, or whatever the situation may be. Uh, and yet, uh, these ordinances obviously provide solace and opportunities for them. Uh, with the idea that they uh, can obtain the fullness of these blessings in the hereafter. Uh, we believe in caring for the single people of the church. It was announced just recently that uh, of all the adults in the church, uh, over a third of them, uh, actually uh, half of them, close to half, excuse me, uh, are single in one form or another. Some never married, some that may get married eventually who are 18, 18 is an adult, of course, between 18 and 23, there are a number of single adults who eventually may be married, I suppose. But uh, about half of the entire adult population in the church are single, and many of them never will be married uh, or never get married again. And, and yet we're trying to provide opportunities for those people too. I have a daughter, for example, who is 40 years old and, uh, and single, and, and she looks forward to opportunities and blessings. She's been to the temple and received her ordinances there, except for the course of marriage one. And, uh, and the promises that come down from our prophets and apostles is that she will have the fullness of her blessings in, in proper time. So as I'm an evangelical and we don't have anything resembling what happens in the temple. And of course you're a temple worker as well. So I'm an outsider. Explain to me the importance of temples. Uh, you've, you've kind of talked about it, but try to tell try to sell this evangelical on the importance of the temple as part of uh, your church uh, tradition and, and what, what, what would it mean to me or, or try, try to explain it to me because I, I, it, it's, it's a concept that's so foreign to the rest of Christianity. <laughs> it, it ties in with uh, principles and ordinances. We believe that uh, both are essentially equal. The principles of the gospel include, uh, uh, of course, living a Christ-like life and repenting of our sins and and uh, and being forgiven of them and the atoning blood of the, the Lamb of God uh, and, and living the righteous life. The, those are principles. But the ordinances include baptism uh, for the remission of sins uh, and baptism by immersion, which is symbolic, and then uh, receiving the laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. Uh, well, we believe that uh, 
those two ordinances uh, are essential for uh, ultimate salvation, but can be performed in behalf of the deceased. And uh, as I often say in my own sermons, we believe in the equality of all human beings, all are likened to God, the living, the dead, and the yet unborn. I emphasize that part too, <laughs> uh, because we're looking forward to our posterity. Uh, in the temples, uh, we are given promises that we will re receive joy and rejoicing and happiness in our posterity. And, uh, and we look forward to having posterity. And uh, Adam and Eve uh, were commanded to multiply and replenish the earth that they might have joy and rejoicing in their posterity. Uh, well, uh, we use Adam and Eve as our prototypes uh, and we believe in, in having male and female come together in holy matrimony. Uh, we believe in sexual purity. The law of chastity is very important to us and the law of chastity teaches that uh, we will have no sexual relations uh, outside of a legal and lawful marriage and, we're, uh, and we adapt full fidelity to our spouse uh, in, in heart and in mind and in action. And we believe that we, uh, thou shalt not commit adultery is an important commandment and, and, and we should be trying to live that. Well, when we go to the temple, uh, this is after being baptized and received the gift of the Holy Ghost. And in the case of men receiving the uh, priesthood, uh, and then we go to the temple and receive the endowment of the holy priesthood, it's called, and women receive an equal measure of these blessings of that endowment when they go. Uh, and then the endowment precedes the sealing the, uh, or the marriage ceremony itself, but we call it a sealing, where, a, where the man and the woman are united in holy matrimony for this life and all eternity, forever. Uh, we call it time and all eternity. Time meaning now on life and then all eternity. Uh, okay, we, uh, and I had that experience with my wife. Uh, missionaries, by the way, received the endowment prior to going on their missions, and I did when I was 19. I was endowed in the Salt Lake Temple February 19th, 1965, a very specific event. I went on my mission 65 through 67. Came back, met my wife, we're engaged in 68. We married January 3rd, 1969 in the Los Angeles temple. Uh, she received her endowment that day. And then we went into the, what we call a sealing room or a marriage room. And there we knelt across the altar. And by authority, we were united in marriage uh, for time and all eternity. In the endowment, which precedes marriage, of course, we covenant to uh, be loyal to God, to keep the commandments, to live the law of chastity, to give our heart, mind, and mind, and means to building up the kingdom of God here upon the earth, all of that type of covenanting. So we're ready to give our whole souls, basically, to God and to his work, uh, and then we're sealed for time and eternity. Okay, we've been married now for 52 years, and we've had our children. And the idea is that our children are now born in the covenant that my, uh, my, that my wife and I made with each other. So they are automatically sealed to us as our children for eternity because they were born in that covenant. I was born in the covenant too. I, I mentioned that my parents were married in March of 1945 in the Salt Lake Temple. And their children, I being the first, were all born in the covenant. So I'm sealed. Now, okay, what if, uh, uh, what about a, a family that converts to the church, a husband and wife in their 20s? Uh, they accept the gospel, they're baptized, they go through that set of ordinances, baptism by immersion for the remission of sins, the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands, by and by the, uh, the, husband receives the priesthood, they then receive the temple recommend. That it, they don't go to the temple the first year, they go after a year, there's that kind of a year thing, that, that uh, they must be a member 
for a year before they can go and be uh, receive the endowment and their ceilings. And they go to the temple. And, and of course, there are these temples all over now. We have 170 uh, operating with more on the horizon. And uh, they, they go to the temple and, and they separately receive their endowment, all right, although in the same room and receive it together at the same time. And uh, then they get to go uh, into the marriage room or the seating room and they kneel across the altar and are sealed for time and all eternity. But then they're chill, if they have children, and they might, they might have a couple little ones, for example. Those little ones are, have been taken care of in a nursery while the endowment ceremony takes place. They are brought in dressed in white and they are at the temple and they place their hands on the hands of the parents. And then those children are dead, sealed as well. Hmm. And, I, and I've had experience of being with people and witnessing this and uh, and seeing this take place. And it's a very uplifting experience. And so uh, that family is then sealed. Well, okay, if, if that couple now has more children after that, well, then those children are born in the covenant. But uh, you can see that everybody has this opportunity. Well, uh, uh, say this couple, the same couple. Okay, uh, the, the man has uh, grandparents who are now deceased. He can now go to the temple and be baptized first uh, and receive the confirmation as well, the gift of the Holy Ghost in the basement of the temple, in the baptistry, we call it. And he goes through that experience. And then he can receive the endowment in behalf of his grandparent, his grandfather. And, and there's a woman who would do it in behalf of her, the grandmother. And then they meet together in the sealing room thereafter and, and they get sealed together. And, and then any of the children who may be deceased, there are people acting as proxies for them. And, and that takes place in behalf of the dead. So uh, all of these same ordinances that are performed for individuals who are living, there's opportunity to have that done for the people who are dead by proxy. Wow, thank you for the uh, tutorial there. I, I guess as a Protestant, of course, I'm thinking to myself, I'm, uh, you know, we're saved by grace through faith alone. Uh, it's fundamental to our, our faith. And I, and part of me is listening to it and saying, boy, that's a lot of works. Well, uh, there are some, but uh, remember that uh, Abraham uh, had this experience that you, you're saved by your works and your faith faith and works. Faith without works is dead, according to the epistle of James. Uh, I believe in grace wholeheartedly. Uh, without grace, we are completely lost and gone forever. Uh, there's no way that we can uh, save ourselves by any amount of works. You can do thousands and millions of good things, and you still will not be redeemed of your sins. Uh, uh, that only comes through the Savior Jesus Christ, and all have come short of the glory of God, and all of us need his grace. Uh, in the prison, I made a big point. Uh, the Utah State Prison is right next to the main freeway, I-15, and I point over to that freeway when I've been teaching in the prison and say, all those people on that freeway need the grace and atonement of Christ as much as you do. And we know that they do because uh, they're, uh, they're guilty of crimes. Uh, and I say these people, and many of these people would be in your place here if they were only caught uh, of doing similar things that brought you here. All of us need that 100%. But then we believe in, in these principles, which uh, one of the principles, of course, is grace. Uh, but we also believe that ordinances are required because we believe that they are, were uh, revealed in ancient times and have been restored in present times. And so these, if, if you want to count those ordinances as works, uh, fine, but we believe that ultimately these ordinances bring uh, uh, precious blessings uh, and brings to it covenants. We get on a covenant path. One of the phrases that President Nelson, Russell Nelson, the president of the church presently, has brought out to the people is we get on the covenant path. And if we keep the covenants, uh, uh, we're in a much better position to receive the be benefits uh, of the grace of Christ and, and all the blessings that God would give us. You know, I, um, one of the things that I think the, the one of the beautiful things about the, the church is that everybody has a role to play. 
the kids, you know, they, they boss them in to do the baptisms of the dead. You, you know, everybody has a role. You become a, a, a priest at a young age if you're a young man. Uh, the elderly, they, they work in the temples. You know, everybody, in other words, there's nobody there. Unfortunately, what so often happens in our society in general, but also within my church tradition is that it's almost like everything is, well, a lot of these evangelical churches are just geared. We got to get the youth and they want their services just geared towards the youth. They forget the elderly in their midst. They kind of shunt them to the side. They feel worthless in so many ways. And so to me, that's one of the great tragedies. And I look at what your movement does is that, no, you're, we're all part of this. We're all working towards this and we all have a role to play. And I think to me, that's kind of a cool thing. Uh, that's the ideal, uh, and th th there are a number of elderly people who feel kind of left out or put out of the pasture, even now in, in the church. Uh, I even mentioned to my bishop, uh, uh, I guess I'm not worth as much as I used to be, <laughs> and I think there's a little bit of age discrimination going on. I'm still capable of doing things, and right after that, he, he gave me more assignments, and, and so <laughs> uh, you're right. That, that's the ideal, and like, uh, like it said, I, I'm the director of a family history center, and we're opening again now after the pandemic, and uh, we bring in lots of elderly people who sit to the side of people who can help them at our nice computer systems that we have there, and we help them identify uh, uh, more of their family history, and, uh, and so yeah, there's plenty of things for elderly people to do. I think that's important. I, I, I do appreciate that the, there's worth and value in everyone in the church and that you do have a role to play. And I think that's kind of a, a cool thing that the, your church does. And I, I want to honor the, you know, the, to honor the elderly and the, 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 the elders in our church is important. And I think so often in the evangelical church, we just, we, we miss, we miss it out on that. And so that's, that's bad on our part. Um, you know, so you know, part of the reason I started this channel was one, actually, my audience is primarily Community of Christ, Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. I also have a, quite a few uh, independent restoration branches and Church of Jesus Christ, your Pentecostal cousins uh, viewers as well. I've reached out to all facets. So to me, the idea is I like the idea of doing bridge building amongst the restorationists. I don't know how I just kind of fell into that, but I also think I believe in it too. So oh. I, I, that's a great thing. Yeah, and there's some great people that I've had Patrick McKay uh, on and uh, other people from different groups. I'm going to have uh, Daniel Stone from the Church of Jesus Christ is coming on. And I just want to kind of have a dialogue where there's a lot of people based in Utah who aren't even aware of a lot of these other branches or their history. And, you know, I, I tell people, you know, the very first restorationist church I ever attended was the Church of Jesus Christ, your Pentecostal cousins. And they'll look at me and say, I didn't know we had Pentecostal cousins. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I think uh, I, I'm kind of Pentecostal myself with my enthusiasm. Uh, I, I say amen really loudly uh, in meetings. Uh, and I've uh, a lot of people joke at, at, at my Pentecostal enthusiasm that I show in in church. Uh, I, I'm a I speak at the pulpit from time to time, and I and I have kind of the vigor <laughs> associated with Pentecostalism. Oh, that's, well, maybe one day I'll find my way out in Utah again, and I'll be able to sit on sit in the pews and hear you uh, give a sermon. Because, uh, yeah, it, it, you know, I always tell people, you know, if you look at early on in those because my family actually came out of the dutch reformed church but then they got involved in the charismatic movement before i was born in the 60s so i was influenced by that and when i read about the early church history in kirtland i'm like this is all too familiar to me <laughs> i i like that myself that, that early movement yeah. uh, that's why I, I like phelps because he had all that enthusiasm <laughs> mm. wow interesting so now like uh, so so i guess I am an evangelical and most of my evangelical friends don't even know that I'm doing this only a handful do. And they're kind of still perplexed. Like, what exactly are you doing? And I'm trying to say, well, you know, I, I just want to have a conversation with people that we have so demonized for over 200 years. We were the, you know, my, my spiritual uh, ancestors, if you will, were the main persecutors of, of, of your church and, and, and uh, a lot of the bad things that happen, you know, it's, it's, I think the time has come where it's been almost 200 years and we've been just doing this and this and this. And I think it's important that we actually just start having dialogue and having conversation Absolutely. with each other. Most definitely. And one thing we have in common is Jesus. There we go. 
but there, but I also believe in interaction with Jews and Muslims. And at the Jerusalem Center, uh, we did do that. Well, we invited uh, people of Jewish persuasion, obviously, uh, to come in, uh, both politically and uh, theologically speaking. We had rabbis. Uh, we even had a rabbi that we hired that, that taught about Judaism. Uh, and he lived in Jerusalem, and he was a devout Jewish person, but he taught for us in order to help us understand. And we did the same thing with uh, uh, Muslims. Uh, Almost all of the uh, students who went to the Jerusalem Center ended up gaining a great appreciation for the Palestinians. The Jerusalem Center was actually in East Jerusalem in Palestinian territory. Uh, and we came to understand their point of view quite a bit. Uh, so you talk about dialogue. We want to have it with everybody, with Buddhists, uh, Shinto, uh, Jainism. Every, uh, in fact, we teach a class at BYU uh, on world religions. We want to understand everybody and try to get along with, uh, with everybody in a harmonious manner, as well as build up our own faith and its traditions. Yeah, it's an interesting, uh, you know, the, your church has a fascinating history. And ever since I was a young child, I, I kind of just got so fascinated by it. And, and I, one of the things I do give a lot of credit for is that there is a lot of teaching about tolerance and uh, the importance of, you know, uh, not trying to, you know, on our side, it's different because we look at well, a lot of people on our side, look at you guys and say, well, we got to save them because they're going to hell. And you guys, uh -huh. uh, you guys are like, well, you're not, you're not going to hell, uh, but we, you know, we, you don't look at us that way. So the, the, it's, we're more intense on our side because we think we're trying to save your souls in, in many cases. And I know it's a very sincerely held belief, but um, I think that's part of the, the stumbling block between us is that one side has, well, they kind of demonize you guys, you know, the evangelicals demonize you guys. And I've been trying to go to evangelicals and say, listen, don't, don't look for the devil, look for the Jesus, look for the areas where we have the common areas, and maybe we can engage in that area. Well, there were times in our history when we looked upon others as demons, too, uh, during the anti-polygamy crusade, we had all of those people who were uh, Christians, so-called, uh, 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 trying to make us look like we were really bad people. And so in turn, we said bad things about them. And uh, there was a tremendous anti-Catholic bias in our church in the early years too. That's all changed, by the way. In, in terms of ecumenicalism, the, our LDS church relates with the Catholics and Catholic charities in ways like nobody else does, uh, and in very harmonious fashions. Uh, but there, there have been the anti-sectarian and anti-Catholic and anti-heathens, uh, uh, meaning any of the other religions out in the world. Th those have existed in our, in our faith, but uh, I think they've been largely eradicated. Uh, you know, you look at some old pictures of uh, some of the wives of Brigham Young, and many of them have crosses. They're wearing crosses. And I know it wasn't until David O. McKay he came along and kind of said, well, this cross thing's a little too Catholic from my understanding. Do you think the time will ever come when the, when you guys, might, your church might embrace the cross again and not and you view it as a symbol of unity within Christianity and something that could be embraced? I guess that's possible. Uh, one of my uh, religious education colleagues currently teaching, John Hilton III by name, has written a, a book on the cross. And I think it, one of his thesis is that we should not de 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 denigrate, excuse me, the cross. Uh, I, I love gospel music, by the way. And, uh, and as I was traveling yesterday, I was actually listening to gospel music, including the old rugged cross. Uh, and I love that song. Uh, I may not completely agree 100% with the entire theology of that song, but uh, uh, the time will come when I lay these trophies down as it comes out in that song. And I am deeply moved by it. Uh, I, I actually had a lot of friends in Nebraska when I was growing up who were Protestant and dedicated to their faith. And I would go into their homes and we would play music with each other, and uh, I became familiar with the old rugged cross. We didn't sing it in our congregation, but I was aware of its importance otherwise, and uh, that still remains one of my favorite songs. Uh, and so I guess the time may come, like you asked, uh, if there's more uh, emphasis upon the cross. Uh, 
theologically speaking, we do emphasize the significance of uh, his dying on the cross and suffering, uh, bleeding and dying for us. Yeah, that's right. And uh, yeah, so we'll see what happens. I think it's a fascinating story. I, I uh, you know, I, I like the idea. I mean, so my family came from a Dutch reform Calvinistic background. So they often, they kind of were a little leery of the cross too, thinking it was uh, something, but they, that church has now since kind of embraced the cross as well. But I, I, I guess it's, it's, I guess I like the idea of, you know, the cross is, is central to what Jesus did at the cross is central to Christianity. And I think that we can find that uh, recognition. And uh, I tell people said, you know, if you confess to your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, and you understand what he did for you at the cross, I don't see what the issue is in not calling that person a Christian. Very fair. fair. That's good. Uh, I, I believe in recognizing all the good activities that anybody does, regardless of their religion. And uh, I like, I, I, I kind of look at works as being not so much what you do, but what he, the work he does through you. I believe in the, that concept. Yes, we're an instrument in God's hands, and we, and we do it, we do it in His behalf. And he works through us. You're right. Amen. Well, I just, uh, I think we pretty much covered everything I want to cover. And I'm looking forward to uh, having our next conversation about the Phelps biography. And we'll um, talk openly and honestly about some of the issues that uh, he encountered in the church, both good and bad. There were interesting challenges in those days, and he went through some of them himself. So, yes, we'll talk about those. And I, appreci I appreciate your candor. Uh, and I appreciate we were able to cover so much territory in today's conversation. And I want to thank you again for coming on at such short notice. Of course, and I appreciate your friendship. Thank you, Stephen. So I just want to remind everybody to like and subscribe and hit the notification button as a reminder when the new video is posted. I'm going to post a link to the book that we talked about, the Phelps book, in, in the description. And we will be talking again soon. So watch for our second interview, probably sometime in the late summer, early fall. You all have a great day.